You're listening to the sermon podcast of Mountain View Church. Whether you're here catching up on last week's message or digging through a past series, we're so grateful you've tuned in today. Our prayer is the next 30 to 40 minutes helps you become a more whole follower of Jesus. If you're local and would like to join us, we'd love to see you this Sunday. For those who can't make it in person, services are also streamed on Facebook and YouTube. All the information about service times, what we have for kids, and much more can be found on our website, almsville.church. Now, let's open our hearts and minds to today's message. My name is Mike. If we haven't met, senior pastor here at Mountain View. They let me pastor this place. I'm not sure why, but if you were here last week, uh, you came back. So that's good. Uh, If you were not offended enough last week, today ought to do it. So um, glad glad you're here. Those of you watching online, welcome home. Glad that you're tuned in with us, whether you're on Facebook or YouTube. uh, Jot a a hello in the comments. We've got someone willing to uh, talk with you and would love to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I want to start off with, with a story. So over the last 100 years or so, our, our country has had several periods of kind of economic upheaval. And when, when that happens, and it's a particularly sharp downturn, we like to give them names so that we can talk about them in history and kind of study them, right? Um, so for example, in 1929, uh, you had Black Tuesday, where the stock market uh, completely crashed, and uh, that led to the period of time that we called the Great Depression, right? Um, fast forward a little bit into the 1970s. Some of you will remember we, we had another kind of recessionary time, and think names like uh, the Nixon shock, uh, the oil crisis, uh, things like that were used to, to talk about that time. Then in 2000, uh, we all, most of us in this room, we all lived through the dot-com bubble, that was, that was the phrase. And then probably the, the harshest downturn in my lifetime, at least, uh, was the Great Recession of 2008, 2009. It's like we kind of ran out of names. Like, what do we want to call this one? The Great Recession. Uh, that's, that's what we're going to call it. And so there's other, there were others in there that I skipped over. And there's lots of reasons for why these happen. Um, some economists would even say that it's actually built into the system and that you should expect these every you know, 15, 20 years or so. But one of the consistent but sad themes in, in all of these economic downturns are tragic stories of suicide. And I want to talk about that for a minute. And so uh, I know I had to give quite a disclaimer last week, but I want to give another one. If that's triggering to you at all, I want you to know about that in advance. I'm going to talk about that. And if you need to leave, I, I understand. Um, but if you, if you go back and you look at the headlines, look at old newspaper clippings from 1929 and, and read through the stories, a few things will stand out to you. One, you'll remember when we actually used to report real news. Uh, that's in there, not just entertainment. Um, but I, but I actually, I went back and I found one of these old black and white clippings online. And in 1929, there was a headline that stood out on the front page. It said, prominent member of New York Mercantile Exchange jumps from seventh floor ledge. And there were lots of stories back then of that happening. And that's been true of every one of these cycles. In fact, even in the latest, the, the, the Great Recession, as we call it, there were a number of stories that made the papers mostly of, of wealthy, uh, you know, traders and business owners and people like that. But it, it actually affected all of us in really significant ways. We just didn't oh, make the papers. Um, in fact, they did a study, and in some of the hardest hit states economically in 2009, 
For the first time in U.S. history, suicide deaths actually outpaced car accidents uh, that year in a few states. So obviously we're in this moment in time where we're seeing similar trends, similar things happening, you know, experts debate whether we're in a recession yet or we're in one now or we're going to be or, you know, whatever. And so I went, I went and just kind of started looking to see if any of these stories were, were happening again. And I stumbled across one from last year, actually. There was a man named Charles Duvall uh, who was at one point the, um, the owner of an investment firm that had uh, two, or, sorry, $20 billion of assets under management, right? Other people's money that they were managing and trading and investing and this kind of thing. And through a series of choices and just economic change and downturn or whatever, almost all of that was lost and the investment firm went under. And so about two weeks later, Charles Duvall walked to his Fifth Avenue luxury office and took the elevator up to the 10th floor and jumped. And that's a tragic story in its own right, obviously. What made me even more sad, though, was the reasons his friends gave for why they think he did it. The New York Post interviewed some of his closest friends. And I want you to, I want you to hear this quote. Right, here's, here's why they told the New York Post that they think he jumped. So this is a Shakespearean tragedy on a lot of levels. Charles was a complex man with a lot of hubris, who felt he failed his mission of value investing and he lost his raison d'etre. Is that how you say that? <laughs> I've been working on that all week. Some of you who speak French are like, that wasn't even close. Whatever, all right? So pardon my French. I've always wanted to say that in a sermon. Pardon my... Okay. And now we're laughing about this. This isn't good. Okay. But that phrase, listen, that, that means, in French, that phrase means that he lost his reason for being, his reason for life. So why did he jump? It, it wasn't because he lost a bunch of money, other people's money, actually. It wasn't be, just because his firm, his job ended, closed. He jumped because... His identity, his, his reason for living was so wrapped up in those things that when he lost those, he thought he lost everything, right? He'd failed his mission in life. He'd lost his reason for being when his company went under. That's really sad. And it, and it raised a question for me, and maybe, maybe you're thinking similarly to this, but it, it ought, to, ought to have us ask the question, how do we prevent ourselves from crashing if our money does? Or maybe because, I mean, I've been around a little while, I, I kind of know these cycles happen, right? Maybe we should rearrange this. How do we prevent ourselves from crashing when our money does? Uh, we're in a series called Guardrails, right? And we're, we're talking about some common areas in life where we need a system to prevent us from falling off the cliff and going into the danger zone. And so, uh, so far we've looked at our friendships and, and how those affect us and how they shape us and what kind of guardrails do we need in those relationships. Um, last week, we looked at our bodies and, and sexuality and, and those kinds of things. And you came back. So I'm really, really grateful that you did. Um, 
Today, I want to talk about money. Some of you are like, I liked last week better. Uh, <laughs> and we just did a message on this, right? Back in December, if you've been a part of our church, we, we talked about giving as an act of worship. Um, this is going to be different than that. But um, we need to talk about this because how we, how we think about money, uh, how we pursue money, what we do with our money, if we don't have some guardrails in place, if we don't have just some commonality, common sense, biblical wisdom boundaries, we, we will be in a world of hurt. Like, like we will hurt each other, we'll hurt ourselves. And Because remember what guardrails are, right? Guardrails are, are systems, they're boundary lines that we put in place, not on the other side of the cliff, not halfway down the cliff. That wouldn't do anybody good. That would just hurt you extra as you fall. Uh, we, boundary, these are, guardrails are boundaries we place before the danger zone before we're in trouble. And, and the Bible just has so much wisdom about this when it, when it comes to how we manage our money. And it's not, not things that you think. It's not just like, how do you stay out of debt? That's an important one. Uh, it's not just, how do you avoid bankruptcy? Because that could really hurt, right? Um, it's, it's not just that. But there's a, deeper, there's a deeper reality that Jesus wants to guard against. Right? There's a deeper issue. There's a deeper cliff that we don't want to fall down. So deep breath, ready? <sighs> okay. Look, if you survived last week, this is gonna be nothing, right? Actually, the Bible uh, talks about, there's about 20, 20, roughly 20 times more material in the Bible about material wealth than there is even sex. Like, it's that important. It's that big of a topic in the Bible. You can't avoid it. When you read scripture, like, man, this whole thing just seems to be packed full of wisdom in this area. So we're gonna be in Matthew chapter six, uh, if you have a Bible, it's the first book in the New Testament. It's the first of four biographies of Jesus, so it's pretty easy to find. Uh, if you're in the Bible app, click on Matthew, click on events in there, right? And it'll open up to all of these scriptures and notes and all that stuff's already preloaded in there for you. You can make notes and share it. And I don't know, the tech people in our church know what they're doing, but it's all in there for you, okay? Matthew chapter six. And I'm gonna start in verse 19. So I'll give you a second to get there with me. Matthew chapter six, verse 19. Ready? Thumbs up? Okay. It says, do not, this is Jesus speaking, by the way. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now jump just a couple verses. Jump down to verse 24. Jesus continues, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So Jesus is kind of laying out the options for us. He says, everyone has a choice in the matter, which that's, that's nice. Choices are good. Uh, but, but only one thing or person can have control of our lives at, at one time, right? Because that's what a master is, right? Masters are, are the thing in charge. They're, they're the thing that controls you. They, they call the shots. Um, they're the boss. And Jesus says, you can only have one. You can only have one of those. You can't serve. You can't be mastered by more than, than one person or thing or, or entity 
at a time. And I think the reason is because at some point, those two entities will conflict. They will, these two masters will ask different things from you. And the one you choose to follow is the one that's really your master. So, so you have a choice, and these, these are the options Jesus gives. Option one is God, and option two is money. You can't serve both. Now, there's an English word in the NIV translation there that I think is just missing a little bit of depth. Um, so in, in Matthew chapter six there, it says, the NIV says, uh, you will be devoted, that's the word, devoted to one and despise the other. Um, now, maybe you don't know this, maybe you do, but the New Testament was not originally written in English. It was written in Koine Greek, not modern Greek, similar, but a little bit different. And uh, the word translated, the NIV translates as devoted there in the English. The Greek word is this word anteho, right? Anteho. And I did take Greek, not French, so try me, okay? Okay. Uh, but it, it's only used in two other verses, actually three other verses in the New Testament, one of which is Luke's version of the same story. So similar, similar context. And then in the other two verses, that word shows up are, are very different contexts. Not, it's not actually talking about money at all. So I wanna read one of those. It's from the book of Titus, uh, Titus chapter one. And what Paul, the author there is talking about, if you look at the context, Paul is talking about the qualifications, the characteristics of someone who would want to be a leader in the church. Uh, he uses the term elders. Right? If, you, if you ascribe or aspire to be uh, an elder, a spiritual leader in the church, these are the kinds of qualifications you need to meet. That's the context of the, of the verse. And so at Titus 1, verse 9, here's one of the qualifications. He says, he must hold firmly, that's the word, entejo, he must hold firmly, to the trustworthy message as it's been taught. So, and, and Teho has this, has this sense of taking a hold of something and refusing to let it go. In, in that context, he's talking about the, the message of Jesus. He's talking about the gospel, the teachings of Christ. Like if you wanna be an elder in the church, man, you, you need to know those things. You need to have them in your, you need to hold on to those and you're not to teach anything else, right? You need to hold on to those. You grab it and keep it and don't let anybody let you or, or take that from you. That's the word, entejo. So let's go back to Matthew chapter six. Jesus uses that same word. It's translated as uh, uh, despise, right? Or, or sorry, you will, you will be devoted. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. It's as if Jesus is saying, two masters, you can choose money or God. But if you choose money, and if you cling to your money, you won't be able to cling to anything else, including me. And we, we know this physically with, with our hands, right? Everybody, will you, will you do me a favor? Put, put your hands in the air real quick, right? All everybody, can you lean them left a little bit? Lean them right a little bit? Wave them like you just know, hey, ho. Anyway, sorry, all right. <laughs> 90s kid, anyway. It has nothing to do with the message. I just, anyway, okay. Um, no, put your hands back, sorry. Fist, right? Would you make fist for me for a second? Okay, now I want you to turn to the person next to you 
and, and give them a, a, a warm embrace. Give them, just pull them close. Just try to. <laughs> Break it up back there. Wow. I hope you listened to last week's pot. Anyway. Uh, you could kind of do it, right, with fists. Like you can kind of wrestle your arm around them a little bit, you know, and kind of pull. You could, you could fist pump, which is sort of friendly. <laughs> it, you, you could push. You could push pretty good, actually, with, with closed fists. You can't really grab them. You can't shake a hand. You can't pull them in. It's awkward, isn't it? It's an awkward way of embracing. I think Jesus is saying the same thing here. That if you grip so tightly to money and techo, it, it makes it hard and awkward to try to grip a hold of anything else. Like some of us just know this from experience that when we were living like this, man, it was really also hard to take hold of peace. Or when you're, oh, come on, I'm gonna, I can't let this thing go. It, it makes it harder to let go of or, or to, to receive joy, to grab a hold of joy. It makes it harder to, to grab a hold of peace. And, and I think Jesus is even saying here, it makes it harder to hold on to God. That, that, that these two things are, are sometimes in opposition. Because what, what else does Jesus say? Do you know the story where there's, there's the rich, rich man that comes up to Jesus and he asks him a question that maybe you even asked before. He's like, what do I gotta do to get in the kingdom of God? And, and Jesus knows his heart, right? Knows his wealth and says, well, you need to get rid of some of your possessions. In fact, he says you need to sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. And I don't think Jesus is saying that's what all of us need to do or I'd be a hypocrite, right? But he knows this man. He knows what's holding him back from being able to really grab a hold of God. He says, so if you wanna follow me, you need to travel a little lighter. You need to let go of all your riches. And it says the man walks away and then Jesus makes this statement that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of, to pass through an eye of a needle than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But there's something about, something about money, something about having money, something about holding on to money that actually makes it more difficult for us to hold on to God. See, it's not really about money. That's the thing. This conversation isn't even about money. If you go back to Matthew chapter six with me, look at verse 21. This is kind of the, the big verse, the key verse in the whole thing. Jesus says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Ah, that's what it's about. Right? Jesus doesn't need your money. What's, what is Jesus gonna do with some dead presidents, right? Like he doesn't really need that. It's not about your money. He says, I heard somebody put it this way, where your money goes, your heart follows. Where your money goes, your heart follows. That's what it's about. It's about the heart. And Jesus knew something about the hearts of the people he was talking to. And I don't think it's really changed in 2,000 years. I don't think our hearts are any different. And it's something we all know, but it's something we don't really want to admit or, or talk about in public. And that's that our financial security, our money, our well-being is often... God's greatest competition in our lives. It, it's the thing that God has to compete with. We don't want it to be. We don't even mean for it to be. I don't think anyone wakes up and goes, you know, I think I, think I wanna put my trust in money today. But that's the temptation, right? That when I, 
when I think about who I am and my identity and my worth in this world, that I would somehow base it on my earthly successes. And, and often in our culture, success is measured by money, right? Or I mistakenly get into this place where I believe that, that if I had that thing or more of those things, then I'd be joyful and then I'd be happy. And then I get the thing and I'm just as miserable as I was before. Sometimes having things makes you more miserable. Anybody else just want to go through your house with a trash bag sometimes and just be like, stuff, where did this come from, you know? Amazon, who ordered it? I don't know. The kids on their Alexa, I don't know. <laughs> Take our credit card off there, right? <laughs> or how about, how about turning to money and what's in your bank account or checking your bank account and having a sense of security or not? Feeling secure or feeling insecure based on money. But the reality is, is, is identity and joy and security, those are all things that we are to receive from God and God alone. And if we find that anywhere else but other than God, what we are talking about, we are quickly entering into the realm of idolatry, right? Idolatry doesn't have to do with little statues in our house. Like, I don't, I don't have any idols. I hope you don't, by the way. Uh, idolatry doesn't have to do with statues. Idolatry has, is, is receiving from something other than God what I am only to get from God. It is putting something as the ultimate value, as the place where I find my meaning and my identity and purpose in life other than the God who created me. That is idolatry. And Paul actually lists some money things attached to that, okay? In Colossians chapter three, verse five, Paul lists a few things. He says, put to death. First of all, that phrase is like really strong. <laughs> put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly, sinful nature. And then he lists some things, sexual immorality, uh, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. And then listen, which is idolatry. He says, these things are not just bad things. They're not just, sin. they actually can become idols. And I don't know about you, but I look at that list and I'm like, some of those kind of all work together and go together and are really bad. And yeah, I, I want to make sure I have guardrails. We talked about last week. I want to make sure I have guardrails in some of these areas in my life before I'm really wreck it. But greed, like that seems to not be like all the others. You ever played that game? Like which one of these is not like the others? Greed feels different, doesn't it? In that list. It's like, is that really on the same, same level? Is that really just as bad, is that, even, is that an idol? Do people really have an idol of greed? Because it, even if it is on the same level, I don't have a problem with that. Nobody in this room has a problem with greed. I, I can't think of a single time in my entire life being a Christian, and I, I was saved when I was 12, so 27 years now. I can't think of a single time where I heard a Christian confess the sin of greed. Have you? I haven't had a single person come to me as their pastor and say, Pastor, I think the thing I'm really struggling with is greed. Right? Greed is hard to diagnose. It's hard to see compared to some of the others on the list. Like, if, like let's take adultery, for example. Um, if you're in bed with someone who isn't your spouse, you kind of know, right? You don't have to go, is this... 
is this adultery? Yeah, yeah, I think so, right? Like it's pretty self, self-diagnosed. self Like it's, it's easy to see, but greed, man, greed is insidious. It is, it is sneaky. And so we get to this place where we go, I'm not greedy. And you're not. No one in this room is greedy. I, other people I can think of are greedy, right? Like, like the, the insider traders uh, in, in the stock market or, or the CEOs of that insurance company that keeps raising the prices on the medicine or um, the, the Bitcoin Bahama guy that's in trouble right now. Like the, those people, that's greed. But not, not here and not here. And I think part of the sneaky way this, that this happens is because when we picture greed, um, we have this sort of picture in mind. This is what we think it looks like. Right? Anyone watch DuckTales growing up? I'm hitting all the 90s people today. That's right. Back when cartoons were awesome. Everybody, everybody thinks that their childhood was awesome, right? But this is Scrooge McDuck, right? Scrooge has got this vault of, of gold, which, by the way, someone took the time to watch, watch DuckTales and figure out the exact dimensions of his vault and figure out how much money Scrooge McDuck had in, at today's value. So they, they did all this and they found, some people have a lot of time on their hands, you know what I mean? But, but they found that his, his vault would be worth $5.4 trillion. And I hear that and I'm like, trillion, like you don't get to be a trillionaire without being greedy. That's greed. Why do you need to be a trillionaire, right? That's greed or billion or whatever. Like there's a number that we have in our mind that we're like, if someone has that much money, they are greedy. That greed is about how much money you have. But hear me, if that is the case, then Jesus wouldn't have talked about it. And Paul wouldn't have talked about it. Because everybody that Jesus is talking about compared to you and me, we're poor. And most of the early church, not all, but by even by first century standards, most of the earliest followers of Jesus didn't have a lot of money. And yet Jesus talks about it and Paul talks about it. Like, like he needed to warn people about this. In fact, in, in Luke chapter 12, verse 15, Jesus says, watch out, right? Watch out. Be on your guard, there it is. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Apparently there's different kinds. I don't know what they are. All kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Like I read that and I'm like, I wonder if Charles Duvall knew that. He lost his reason for being. Here's Jesus flat out saying like, you are not your stuff. You are not your things. You are not your bank account. That is not life. That is not what matters. Watch out. Watch out from falling into that trap. So be on guard against all kinds of greeds. How do, how do we do that? And what are, what are the ditches that we need to avoid? I think there's kind of two sides to this that I can think of that we need to guard against. Ditch number one is over-consuming. Right? We need to be on guard against over-consuming. Um, a lot of our world, I think, lives by the motto, if I want it and I can afford it, then I should have it. 
If I want it and I can afford it, I should have it. And falling into the ditch of overconsumption is easier for you and me than it's ever been, thanks to the modern invention of credit. So we could actually change it and say, if I want it, and even if I can't afford it, I can have it for a little while until they come and take it. (laughs) And then you have highly effective marketing, right? Have you ever had this thing happen where you're talking with your friend or your spouse or whoever, and, and all of a sudden, the next time you get on Facebook or the next time you're on Google or whatever, the thing you were talking about is in front of your eyes? You're like, is this phone listening to me? How did, yes, yes it is. It absolutely is. It's not me being tinfoil hat crazy. Um, that's a real thing, right? That, that is a one way that we market these days so that you see the thing you're talking about or the thing that everybody, and all of a sudden you're on social and guess what? Everybody else owns that thing. You never noticed it before, but all of a sudden you're seeing all these pictures on Instagram or whatever. It's like, wow, and they're having so much fun. And I would be too if I had that thing. So you combine modern systems of credit and highly effective marketing, and it is just like danger zone city for overconsumption. And if we don't use all of it, or if we just decide, hey, I don't really want this, or I don't, I don't need it anymore, we can just trash it. Now, um, I'm not saying anything to, to shame anybody or, you know, I, I'm grateful to live in this country, but it's the only one that I know. So if I'm going to pick on any country, I'm going to pick on my own, okay? And, and so the United States, get this, the United States, we, we are about 5% of the world's population, 5% of the world's population. We produce 40% of the world's waste. Wow, we're pretty good at this overconsuming thing, maybe. They actually did a study that kind of how much energy we use and how much we buy and how, and they actually determined, um, that, and there was Americans in this study, so it wasn't just like other countries don't like us, right? Uh, but it was estimated that if everyone else in the world lived the way that Americans live, it would take 4.1 Earths to sustain it. I'm not a mathematician, but I think we only have one, and we won't ever have four. So something's got to give there, right? Again, not trying to shame any, anybody. And I, I am just as much a part of the problem as anybody else. I'll confess that. But that should mess with us a little bit. Like, where, where, why do we have all this stuff? And what are we going to do with it? And where is it going to go? And how is this going to work out? So, so ditch number one is overconsumption. The second ditch that we need some guardrails against is undergiving. Right, so overconsuming and the number two, undergiving. Now, if you're a part of Mountain View, if you've been around for a while, what I'm about to say, you've probably heard before, but we've got a lot of new faces in the room and maybe you're watching online and you've never heard this. It's just like, this is too important to not, to not get. Um, again, and this isn't about money. This is about your heart. So, so here's the statement. All of us, myself included, all of us, you watching online, are business owners. Did you know that? You own a business. You run a business. No matter what your title is, no matter what your profession is or how you make money. It, if you make money, if, if you have money to manage, you have a business to run. And some of you might say, yeah, Mike, and you should mind your own business. <laughs> and I will, and I do, and I'm almost done, okay? But if you have money, you have a business. And you gotta figure out, okay, how's my business gonna run? How am I gonna manage it? What am I gonna do with this income? And this is where a budget comes in. 
Everybody say boo. <laughs> there is nothing that ruins a good date like a budget. You know, like budget talk is not fun, and I, I get that. Um, but budgets, budgets, budgets are you managing your money, right? A budget is telling your money where to go. It's not a bank statement. Bank statements tell you where your money already went. <laughs> There's a difference. Some of you are like, I have a budget. Wells Fargo sends it to me at the end of every month. That's not a budget. <laughs> That's telling, that your money's gone at that point, right? A budget is on the front end. It's you telling your money where you want it to go. And all of us have one whether it's written down or whether you stick to it or not, all of us have a certain flow of, of our assets and our income and our businesses. And most of us, the vast majority of people run their business in this order, okay? Live, save, give. Live, save, give. Meaning money comes in, which you earned, you worked hard for, it's yours, it's coming into you and in your house. And, and so you decide, I'm gonna live on almost all of it, meaning I'm gonna spend it. Right, rent, groceries, all the things. And then I'm gonna save a small percentage of it, most months, maybe. And then I'm gonna give when I can, if I can, ever. And most people, I'm not shaming you, by the way, most people live this way, and if you live this way, you are in great company. Some of my favorite people in the world live this way. Live, save, Give. But when you read scripture, and I'm not gonna have time today to break all these categories out, and here's all the scriptures that line up with these, but if you read scripture, you're gonna find that, that there's a business plan in here that's almost the exact opposite of this, where that flips the first and the third. And it's a plan that not only keeps you out of the danger zone, but it has the power to shape your heart like God's heart and keeps you from doing this and instead living like this, where you can not only give, but you can now receive because your hands are open. And it's the exact opposite. So rather than live, save, give, it would be to manage your business, to manage your finances in such a way that you put give first, save second, and then you live off the rest. That is, in a nutshell, a, a biblical plan for your wealth. And we don't have time this morning, like I said, to go through every scripture. You can search those out. Here, here's all I'll tell you. And someone in first service got fired up about this, and there was a lot of amen and going on. Um, I'll just tell you the most generous, most peace-filled people I know live like this. Thank you. <laughs> Second service, not excited. Okay. And I... I'm, I'm telling you this, not because of the bragging, but I've lived like this my entire life. I've taught this from a young age and I've lived like this my entire life. And I know from experience the power of this. I sleep really good at night. And it's not because I'm Scrooge McDuck swimming in a vault of money. The person who amens on our board, they can tell you what I make, okay? It's because flipping this order frees up something in us. And again, it makes us go from this to this. And it frees us not only from the grip of greed, but it keeps us out of those ditches of over-consuming and under-giving. One of the things I appreciate the most about Jesus is that he never asks me to do something that he wasn't willing to do. Like, that's the kind of guy he was. That's the kind of leader Jesus is. He goes first. And this is how Jesus not only spent his money, this is how Jesus spent his life. 
fact, he was, he was even more radical. Okay, listen, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. It says, for you know the grace, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, I mean, think about all the things Jesus had before he came to earth. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, you and I, we might become what? Rich. Did you know you're rich? Like, oh, I'm not rich. I think you are. Jesus was even more radical. He didn't do this whole live, save, give thing. Jesus gave, and he gave, and he gave his whole life. What if we did that? Like, what if we put giving first? Last week, we did this kind of thought experiment at the end, right, where we said, you know, even if you weren't a Christ follower, even if you didn't agree with everything in the Bible, that if you would adopt the Christian sexual ethic, what kind of changes would we see in our culture? We, we kind of walked through that a thought experiment. I want to do that a little bit with this as well, okay? So if Christians, not everybody in the world, just those who say, I'm a follower of Jesus, I take his, he's the master of my life, I take my cues from him. If, if Christians flipped that order and put giving first and gave, and it's just one number, gave 10%, and, is, and then saved and then lived off the rest. If they gave 10%, it's estimated that would generate $165 billion in giving. $165 billion with a B. And so I hear that and I, I step back and I'm like, what, what would be different in this world if there was $165 billion of, of charity, of giving, flowing through our churches, throwing, flowing from Christians' hands out into the world? not even just to, to churches. And I read an article that talked about this. What problems could be solved? What, what could we do? What, who could be helped? Well, $25 billion would cut global hunger, starvation, and deaths from preventable diseases in half in five years. $25 billion. $12 billion could all but eliminate illiteracy from the world. $15 billion could solve the world's water and sanitation problems in developing countries. You, know, you and I, it's like in Almsville, we have debates occasionally about the taste of our water. Like, oh, is it very good? I don't know. I got a filter. <laughs> you go to other countries <laughs> in the world and it's like, wait, you have water in your house? How's that work? $15 billion. $1 billion would fully fund all overseas missionaries. People who have been called by God to spread the gospel in foreign countries. $1 billion could fund them for the year. Now, if you do math, I don't. If you do math, that still leaves $110 billion after those problems have been solved. And, and, I, and I know, I've been around long enough to know that throwing money at a problem doesn't mean you'll solve it and money gets wasted and all these, I understand all of that kind of stuff. But can you, like, can you imagine the impact the church, not the church building, not the church as an organization, but the church as the, the body of Christ, the impact the church would have if we gave first. And not only would it make a huge difference in this world, it, but it would, keeping, and it, would, it would keep us from crashing if or when our money does because now our identity isn't wrapped up in those things because I've attached my heart to a better master. 
and he tells me who I am, not my money. Can you imagine that? I wanna invite you into that. I wanna invite you into living that way and, and bearing the fruit of that in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is just as true to us today as it was to the people who heard this in the first century. And I imagine they had some questions. I imagine they had some pushback, like, Jesus, my cupboards are pretty bare. I'm not sure you understand the situation. But it wasn't about money. It's about what money does to us. It's about the grip that it can have in our life and how to release that so that we can experience the full life that you have for us. And so I just pray that over our church today, Lord. I pray for those watching online that they would find a way to run their business in a way that not only pleases you, but keeps them from these traps, that keeps them from over-consuming or under-giving. None of us want to do those things, and yet we, we tend to fall back into them over and over if we don't have a clear plan for the wealth that you've entrusted to us. So guard us from all kinds of greed. And that could look different for each one of us, Lord, but you know, would you guard us from all kinds of greed? We love you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for giving up everything. Though you were rich, you became poor for me. Thank you so much. We love you, Jesus. Amen.